most people are told, especially in the millennial generation, we're told to just put it in the target date funds. So if your retirement date is supposed to be 2055, you put your money in that 2055 target date retirement fund, right? It's so easy. Like, oh, I just have to pick the day I want to retire. And that's it. What's interesting, though, is I ran the numbers. The S&P 500's real return in the last 10 years. And just so you know, the average return that they tell you is different than the actual return of the stock market. Listen, everybody, we all know that real estate is the most proven way to build wealth. But why isn't everyone wealthy from real estate then? It's hard to know where to start. And most of the education out there is just complete trash. And you end up investing your money on a series of courses instead of in real estate. That's not how this podcast works. We give you the blueprint to successful real estate investing and bring on guests actually willing to share their secrets. I started my real estate investing journey as a freshman in college when I bought my first duplex and have been in the trenches doing deals ever since. And today, I now own hundreds of millions of dollars of investment property. On this podcast, you will learn what you actually need to know to be a successful active or passive real estate investor. And we'll offer our takes on what's happening today so you can navigate this market and build wealth. I'm Drew Brenneman, and this is the Brenneman Blueprint. Welcome to the Brenneman Blueprint. Really excited for today's episode. Have uh, have guest Chris Miles from Money Ripples. So he has uh, he's basically like a uh, repented financial advisor. Um, really interesting story. And one thing you know that I really like about Chris, you know, he doesn't just talk about you know stocks and bonds and kind of the usual stuff with his his clients. Um, and he's also got a really really great podcast everybody should check out the money ripples podcast and he's also been just kind of featured it seems like everywhere us news cnn bigger pockets um but he's getting getting good results uh it's he had told me earlier before we got going that he's helped his clients increase their personal cash flow over 300 million bucks so um he's, he's getting it done and it's interesting a lot of people they just you know they aren't really talking about cash flow and that's another thing that i thought was interesting where usually you just hear about um, building a nest egg and, and that kind of thing. But then when you go retire, it's like, what's the plan? So anyways, welcome, Chris. Hey, it's a pleasure to be on, man. Yeah. So how, I guess, let's just, how'd you kind of get get started doing what you're doing and, and maybe just bring it up, bring us uh, current to today? Yeah. Well, it definitely wasn't my, my original career choice. I was planning to become a business consultant, but I changed direction a little bit. Uh, to go back, I mean, I was raised by parents that taught me good values. You know, um, I mean, my dad taught me that your word is your bond. My mom taught me that you know, it's, you know, you follow your heart, your passions, and you leave a legacy. Um, but the one thing they didn't teach me about was money, right? They were the typical Americans that, you know, my dad was like the save it forever kind of guy. Like he was like Dave Ramsey's older brother that and Dave Ramsey looked up to, you know, like he was <laughs> the nice. penny pinching miser, you know, he saved everything. He didn't want to spend money. Um, I mean, it paid off his debt, all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, but I mean, it was always a, a, a life of lack. Us. It was always like, we can't afford this. What do you think I am made of money? Money doesn't grow on trees, you know? You know, all those kind of common phrases you hear growing up. And at least it was for me. And the worst one for my dad was, I'm going to work until I'm dead. Like my job will literally kill me. And I, I vowed I didn't want to be to follow that path. And so when I went to college, like I said, I want to become a business consultant. So I dropped out of college to get real life business experience because I thought, you know, I don't want to just have an MBA. I want to have experience to go with that MBA. So I dropped out, just supposed to be a one-year sabbatical. I was trying to figure out what business to start. And the one that came up eventually that, that intrigued me was a financial advisor position. And I thought, well, this could be fun. You know, I don't know much about money. I'd like to know more. And maybe it'll help my dad get his life back. And what was interesting 
is that uh, I didn't realize it was so easy to get in. You just had to pass a test with 70% and not have a criminal record and you could become a financial <laughs> advisor. But I thought you had to really audition for that thing, you know? So I was like, you know, almost like trying to boiler room it, you know? But uh, anyways, eventually, like I started to do that, that path that was commission only type of advisor services. And, and uh, I, I liked it. I actually liked being an entrepreneur and being on my own. And then after a few years or so of being in that business, my dad said, well, when are you going to advise me? And that was probably the most nerve wracking meeting I ever had. Like, it doesn't matter how much money other people had that was, you know, could make me nervous. It was nerve wracking because this was my dad, right? And, uh, and of course, he's very opinionated, you know, very bold in how he speaks, way more bold than I am. And, uh, and of course, you know, he's the guy that changed my diapers, right? So um, it was a little bit intimidating going in. But as I sat down, look at his finances, which he never talked about growing up, at least other than saying he doesn't have money. Um, I'm looking at all of the money, right? That uh, he never would show us. And as I'm looking at it, you know, he's packing money in his 401k. He had paid off his house early. He was debt free, totally proud of that. And I said, all right, dad, here's the deal. If you want to retire today, even though you're 61 years old, you would have to hopefully die in five years because that's how long your money will have before it runs out. He said, all right, Chris, that's not what I want to hear. <laughs> I said, uh, the, I don't know what to tell you. He's like, all right, well, what, what, what can I be doing? What else should I do? Like, what else do you have for me? I was like, I don't. You did everything right. You did everything that all of us as financial advisors told you to do, and yet it's not enough. And that bugged me. It really bugged me because, remember, he was kind of the inspiration that helped me get into this business, and now I can't even help him. And, and it was interesting because then my, one of my friends who was a financial advisor, I actually hired him as a financial advisor in my firm, and then he left to go do real estate investing. And I thought, oh, good luck with that. Well, I talked <laughs> to him just four months later and he and his dad are partnering on some deals. They're actively flipping properties and double his dad's income as a professor at the local university. And I thought, okay, that's too good to be true. No way. Stocks are still better, better than real estate. It's historically proven that you put a dollar in stocks in 1926, it'll be $56,000 today, right? And all that kind of junk, you know? <laughs> and uh, he's like, Chris, how many of your clients are truly financially free where they don't worry about money? And I said, oh, well, you put it that way, even the clients that are retired, they still worry about you know, not having enough money when they die, so none of them, none of them are that free. Okay, Chris, good job. Well, how about this, Chris? How many of you guys as financial advisors are free, not off the commissions you're earning, but actually being in these mutual fund investments? And as I thought about it, I thought, well, let me think. You know, and I, I remember I'd been in that office for four years. There's 100 people in that office. And there's guys that have been working there since the late 1970s. And yet they still couldn't retire. And this is, of course, the mid-2000s, right? This is about the time you had your internet business, you know. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, so I'm like, no, maybe none of them. He said, there's your problem, Chris. Okay, well, give me the answer, Doug. His name is Doug. He's like, I'm not going to give you the answer because you just got done telling me that stocks are better than real estate. I said, listen. I, I get what you're saying. I'm open. You know, give me something. And so he had me read the book, how to, um, um, <laughs> the book by Robert Kiyosaki, not Rich Dad Poor Dad. It's actually called Who Took My Money, right? Um, basically, if you were to save you the three hours of an audio book, mutual funds suck is the point of the book, right? Um, and, then, and then he had me listen to this AM talk radio show that was local here in Utah that had these two real estate investors talking. And I got into it. I got sucked into it. And a matter of a few months later, I had this integrity crisis. I now knew something was better than what I was teaching. Because the truth is, 
the results from financial advising wasn't working. People were not becoming financially free and it was becoming, in my, my mind, proven. Evidence was overly abundant that people could not retire, paying off their debt, and saving in mutual funds. It's just not enough. There's not enough return in the market and you can't live on enough to make sure that the money doesn't run out. But then I seen this other path of cash flow and passive income. That path worked. That was proven. There's people actually financially independent, sometimes in their 20s, 30s, or 40s, actually financially independent. And so I had to make a choice. Either I stay in my current path as a financial advisor, which I was already questioning anyways, or I keep my integrity intact and leave. And so I chose the latter. I said, you know what? I'm done with financial advising. Never do it again. I'm just going to go be a mortgage broker, do a little bit of you know stock coaching on the side, and teach ballroom dancing as well on the side. And, uh, and that's what I started quite doing. quite the mix. It, it's definitely, oh, I'm, so, I'm kind of a renaissance man. <laughs> yeah, that's so interesting. And just kind of the way your your dad uh, thought about money and talked about money, that's exactly how my grandpa was. Mm-hmm. So my mom's dad. And it was where he was, he, he had done what everyone told him to do, you know, just worked. He worked at the same company, I understand it, as his entire career, like, yeah. uh, you know, a 40 plus year career. And, you know, the, the only reason that worked back in the day was he had a pension, you know, but he did all the stuff you're talking about, but he, on top of it, he had a pension. So then he ended up being okay because of that. But if someone would have opened up the kimono on his finances, I mean, he taught me when I was a kid because I was interested in money. I'd ask him what he was investing in and go to the bank with him. And he was investing in, I don't even know what they're exactly called, but the bonds where you get them physically whatever yeah. those are. So you don't, you don't even trust the bond market. He literally kept them in his home. Um, mm-hmm. and they're like physically redeemable. So if, you know, the bank goes under, that's like, you're still protected kind of mentality. So yeah, that's, um, so I know what you're saying. And then, yeah. And someone like that, if he didn't have a pension, his, his income was never high enough to save as much money as you would need to be living off. Yeah. One and 2% kind of stock dividend or, you know, two and 3%, 4% bond yields like that. You're never gonna, mm-hmm. um, never gonna save enough doing that. And yeah, I, I totally hear what you're saying. And then once you realize that it's like, you feel like you're shelling out bad advice and this is like not somewhere I'd want to want to be either. So yeah, to finish the thought where those products also like commissions where it was, they were sometimes loaded products too. And, um, all that, or how were you even getting paid as a financial advisor? Yeah, it was all commission based. Yeah. So it was, I mean, they all had their different commissions and different, you know, loads and things like that. I mean, there's like annuities, right? There's different types of mutual funds, even the different types of funds would pay you differently. Like if I put somebody in a money market, I got paid almost nothing, you know, cause they got right. paid nothing. But, uh, you know, there are more mutual funds. You could do front-loaded, back-loaded, you know, mix between, um, all that kind of stuff, you know, that we did. Even insurances that we did as well. Usually with stock market-based type insurances like variable universal life instead of the typical, you know, like I poo-pooed all of our whole life, you know, even though I never knew what it looked like. I was just like, oh, whole life sucks. Why? Because that's what everybody in my office told me. <laughs> yeah, you know? and were you guys selling whole life? No, it was probably oh, no, you guys had no, we, we didn't sell whole right? life at all. We, we yeah. just... We, we sold like stuff that's mostly stock market based, you know, what really woke me up right in that industry was that I was really just a salesman in a suit because all the education that you're taught as financial advisor comes from the companies you sell for. Right. And they're, and they're, they're coming across as like, Hey, we're going to teach you about this. And here's some great strategies to help your clients. But in truth, all you're doing is you're being trained to sell the clients that one thing. 
And if you look at the media and everything else around, because people say, well, what real estate investing? Why don't I hear more people talk about that? Well, because there's not a big commission based on that. That's why. Because every financial institution is selling you stuff. In fact, look at the two big things you're told to do in the accumulation theory, as I call it, right? Where you're taught to accumulate net worth, you know, raise, you know, save up as much as you can in your mutual funds while paying down your debt. Both those strategies, ironically, isn't it funny that that saving up in those mutual funds, that's how the insurance, that's how the, uh, the, the companies like your Goldman Sachs, your Merrill Lynch's, all those companies, right? Fidelity, they all get paid off of those load fees. They get paid their fees, whether you make money or not in the market. So they make money by you keeping your money there, that miracle of compounding interest and let it keep growing and pull out less than the interest when you retire. And then they also tell you, on the other side, pay off your mortgage, which puts the banks at less risk too, which just puts more money in the bank's hands, right? I used to think that, you know, having, you know, having a mortgage was what was making the interest, was making the, the bank more money. And yes, of course, when they loan out money, they make money. But the truth is the faster you pay back those loans, the more money they can lend out again. They keep getting that flow. Or I call the acceleration of money, right? They're constantly flowing money through to accelerate and create more speed. And we're just told, Hey, set it and forget it. You know, put, you know, pay off your house, be debt free. And then of course the banks are fine or keep paying down that house accelerated payment for a while. Those things are the very things that make banks and financial institutions more money. Isn't it funny that that's the, that's what all the educations teach us to do in, in the financial world. And that's, and that's why, because they are the ones giving the education pass on through financial advisors and financial experts, the talking heads on TV to then pass on to you to say, that's what's conventional wisdom. No, it's not. It's what's conventional sales for them. Uh, yeah, I've re I've realized the same. Where the uh, you you realize that when you talk to your you know any life insurance agent or person, right, a financial advisor, when you really look at what are they you know offering you or selling, they it's well, yeah, I I am a big fan of mutual funds. It would be their response, and like, why is that? Like, that's what I'm that's what I'm offering. You know, um, doesn't you know having going into a, a, you know low fee ETFs that you can just buy on your own would that wouldn't be helping them any given that advice but so yeah i've i've saw that too and i even i tell people that that are new in real estate there's a similar sort of parallel with real estate brokers where sometimes new investors get frustrated with the brokers where they're like i ask them what they think of it they always say it's good and this and that and like there's just everything so positive and it's hard to like actually talk to them and um, this and that. And it's like, they're in a sales role. They're not, their job isn't to tell you don't buy my deal. It's to say, here's what's good about it and why I like it. It's up to you as the buyer to figure out if that matches for you and what, what you don't like about it or what the problems are. And so same thing with investing in anything really, but that's sort of the real estate parallel where I hear, you know, new people kind of, <laughs> you know, frustrated with that where they're like, and it's, yeah, their job isn't to, their job is to sell the deal, not to explain what's wrong with it, you know? Yeah. Um, so that's interesting. Well, yeah. So then where, where did, um, actually a mutual fund question before we go into mm -hmm. what was next at this point for mutual funds, you, you were selling loaded, offering loaded mutual funds. I know in their sort of pitch on that is the annual fee. The management fee is, should be lower cause there's a, a load. Do you even agree with that at this point with all the additional knowledge you've obtained or what would you say about loaded mutual funds? You know, it, it's not, it's, it's no, uh, unknown statistic. Of course there's, it's pretty commonly known that over 90% of mutual funds don't even keep up with the S and P 500. And that's true. 
And that's not just the typical mutual funds that you might buy from an advisor. That's even true with your 401k. In fact, more so true with your 401k funds than anything. I'll give you an example. Uh, Fidelity just came out with their numbers at the end of, after the end of 2022. And they said, all right, well, the number of 401k millionaires is shrinking. Uh, there are now only 299,000 people with 401k balances over a million dollars in Fidelity. And that's with tens of millions of clients, right? Um, one, that's, of course, uh, just proof that it doesn't work. But two, what's interesting is this, is that they also released what they're, well, and actually, you don't even have to uh, wait for the report. You can actually just go online to Fidelity's website, see what their funds actually pay. You can see all their different funds. Most people are told, especially in the millennial generation, we're told to just put it in the target date funds. So if your retirement date is supposed to be 2055, you put your money in that 2055 target date retirement fund, right? It's so easy. Like, oh, I just have to pick the day I want to retire. And that's it. What's interesting, though, is I ran the numbers. The S&P 500's real return in the last 10 years. And just so you know, the average return that they tell you is different than the actual return of the stock market. And, and I say that because if you've ever heard these numbers before where average and actual are different, uh, for example, let's just say you have $100,000 and the market tanks 50% you're down to 50,000 bucks. Now, it's funny because I remember a, a guy came to train our office when I was a financial advisor to teach us this. And he said to every financial advisor in the room, there's a lot of us, there's over 50 of us in the room in this training. And he said, okay guys, so you just lost $50,000, you lost 50%. What's the return you need to make to get back to 100,000? And we all said 50%. He said, no guys, it's not. Because 50% of 50,000 only gets you, to, to, gets you 25,000 more to 75,000. You're not there yet. He said, guys, you need 100% return. So he wrote the numbers. He said, 100% minus 50 equals 50 divided by two years. He's like, guess what? Even though your actual return, if you actually did this, got back to 0% return, your average return is actually 25%. This 50% divided by two years is 25%. But your actual yield was only zero. And of course, if you're being honest, if there was those load fees, it, it probably would be more like around $96,000, $97,000, right? <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, he brought that point up. He's like, average and actual are not the same. And that blew our minds as financial advisors. Like, what? And so I started to actually look at the S&P 500. Did you know the 30-year the average of the S&P 500 is actually, as of two weeks ago, and this could be, it depends on the day, of course, but it's usually pretty close to this number. It was 7.65%. Not 10, not 12, 7.65%. And remember, 90% plus of mutual funds never even make it, never even hit what the S&P 500 does. So I'm more of the opinion that an index is better, but I don't think it's the answer. It's not enough because uh, even Fidelity, people that are saving the 401ks getting their match, they think the match is going to make them 100% return or 50% return. That's not true either. Put 100% return with, you know, say you're saving $10,000 a year in a 401k, put a 100% return for 20 years and watch what that number does. You'll be you'll be richer than Bezos, okay? right? In twenty yeah, years, yeah, it's a hundred percent one-time match. Yeah, yeah, it's a one-time match, and so all it does long-term, if you talk about the rule of seventy-two, it only adds about a two or three percent return long-term at most. If you're max funding your four hundred one k, it's a lesser return because you're putting more in than what you get for the match. Um, so what happens though is the fidelity. When I going back to this example, right? I looked up their funds for the last ten years. Those target date funds hit about 8%, almost exactly 8%. That's before the 0.75% comes out. So it's really about 7.25% they made. But the S&P for the last 10 years, that actual yield was 
So really think about it. The target date retirement funds that everybody's saying, oh, that's good. I'm in the market. You made almost 3% less than what the market actually did. So going back to that 7.65%, well, what if 7.65% is that number? And let's just say I make it a little less than 3% still, right? You extrapolate that and say, well, what if it's the same spread? Well, guess what? You didn't make 7.65. Now you're making about a little less than 3% less than that. That's about 4.75%, right? You're now not even making 5%, which goes more true when you hear people that have been in 401ks for a while saying, wait a minute, like my returns are not that good. So even with the match, yeah, you got another 2% back. Okay, you got 7% maybe, 8% if you're lucky, and then you get taxed on all that too. So it's 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 a sham. I think it's, a, it's one of the biggest, crappiest type of Ponzi schemes ever is the 401k. I think it's a, a dumb thing to do. Um, when you see the reality, and this is coming from a guy who used to tell people, load up money in your 401ks, right? But when I started to see the truth, that's when I realized real estate, you have way better odds of success in real estate. And you know, you mentioned that on my podcast too. Right. And how did the 10% turn to seven and then to four? I was with you on the average, the difference where you average things. Cause in like a uh, private equity or what we do, like we would have calculated a compounded annual growth rate, which my understanding is in that isn't uh you know it's not taking a simple average so then it's interesting any sort of like real data source if you're like what was the rent growth in this market the last 10 years they wouldn't tell you the average they would tell you a Mm -hmm. compounded annual growth rate or what you should do probably is just download the raw data and then calculate it yourself which is what we we do but um how did the 10 turn into seven where at that point you had lost me in this because i i was with you where it averages out you get a little lower but how did that s&p actually make 10 and then the fund made seven yeah we almost something. need a whiteboard don't we <laughs> i mean yeah, so, i thought it was because it was partially in bonds or something you know because you need to get you going in bonds a little bit early or something silly but um yeah the, didn't sound the, like that. there's there's those ones those those are like the target date 2025 2030 those ones have a little bit more heavy in bonds so i was looking i was more quoting the ones that are longer term the ones they pretty much just put in equities you know um and so those target date funds so yeah, the 10.1%, that's the SP 500. That's if you were to take the SP 500 of the end of March of 2013 to the end of March of 2023, right? So that those, that 10 year period, mm-hmm. if you were to take the, the SP price compared to the price today and you put it into a compound interest calculator, you'll find out that the average, like the average compounding return was 10.1%. So not a total return, obviously that's average yep. per year, like an actual yield, you know? So that's the problem is that a lot of times people say, oh, it's average this. But yeah, but the averages you put in the calculator, it comes out with a very different number than the reality. So we got to put in the actual number that works, right? So 10.1, which is higher than the average of the 7.65 for the last 30 years, the last 10 years has been 10.1 because we had the 2010s, which were just awesome. Well, the fidelity funds, the, those longer target date funds that are more equity-based, those ones were averaging almost exactly 8%, even whether it's the 2050, 2055, 2060, they're all pretty much about the same return of about 8% during that same period of time when the market did 10.1. Yeah. And the reason but, for that is just, is just because what they had selected as their investments now that I would right. assume, okay, got it. That, yeah, that's where I was like, the index, right? They're just, investing at first I thought that's fund. what we were doing apples to apples. And I was like, how did they underperform by three if they but it's what they picked okay got it so it's right again we're paying exactly. we're paying fidelity to um not beat the market you know so good then you can pay them extra for that 
Um, yeah. But yeah, that, that took away more because there's the load fee, right? The 0.75% fee shows right there next to the fund. That's not included in that 8%. So when you take that 0.75% away, now you're left with about 7.25, 7.3%, while the market did 10.1. So if you had been just in the S&P 500 fund, right, just or just the, the ETF, you know, the exchange traded fund, you would have made almost 3% more than having your money with Fidelity. Interesting. Yeah, I can see that. So that's, well, then let's, let's hop to what, what you figured out what you'd want to invest in. So we got, we were mortgage brokering and, uh, and doing, doing all this other stuff. And then where, where did you kind of see the light on cash flow? Yeah, I saw it before I quit being a financial advisor. I spent about two and a half months trying to make it work. And then I realized I just couldn't do it anymore. Right. So I, I left being a financial advisor and that's where I was doing, you know, doing mortgages and whatnot. And then at the same time, I was learning about real estate and more of the active, like flipping and things like that. I was doing more active investing, management. I was buying even properties, doing long-term rentals and things like that. Um, and eventually, later that year, I was actually able to get out of the rat race myself. Now, granted, my expenses were only 3500 a month at the time, so it wasn't hard to get out of the rat race. Um, but, I mean, I was, pretty, I was pretty happy. I was like, wow, I'm 28, almost 29 years old, and I don't even have to do mortgage brokering anymore. I could quit that. I could quit doing stock coaching. I could do whatever I want. And that was a scary place to be because I never expected to be there that quickly, <laughs> you know? Um, but it was, it, but that was the thing, like that really that revelation was, it was always about cash flow, right? Like what's the actual income or profits coming in? And remember in that accumulation mindset of, as a financial advisor, you just think I got to build up this humongous nest egg and then live on 3% a year. Um, it's funny cause a lot of people that talk about the fire movement, right? The whole 4%, you know, you, you live on 4% that, that was almost debunked 20 years ago when I was a financial advisor. It's now since been debunked a couple years ago by even some of the bigger firms saying, yeah, that 4% rule doesn't work anymore. It should be at most 3%, right? So, Interesting. so if you save up a million bucks in your 401k, that means you're living on 3%. That's $30,000 a year before taxes, right? Um, so it's, so even then I was thinking 3% back in those days, um, back around like 2004, 2005, my goal was to have $2 million, $2 million saved up. Cause I thought I'd be living, living a very comfortable life at 5,000 a month, right? At 60,000 yeah. a year. <laughs> so I thought, awesome. I just need to save 2 million bucks. And if I scrimp and save, I turn off the AC in the summer, turn off the heat in the winter and just, you know, be as cheap as I possibly can. Um, maybe I can save up enough that by age 40, I'll be financially independent, right? That was my goal. And so all of a sudden with real estate, the big shift for me was, I mean, just using easy numbers, right? Like if I could, you know, put a hundred thousand dollars, earn 1% a month or 12% a year, that's a thousand bucks a month. That's way better than $3,000 a year from a retirement plan, right? That's four times better. So it, it was, I was in this place of almost like euphoria, when I realized what you could do with real estate, because I'm like, wait a minute, all these people that I'm telling, oh, you're gonna have to delay retirement. You have to push it off forever, <laughs> you know, um, tell them to do that versus wait a minute, you've got $500,000. If we made just 12%, that's 50, you know, it's 5,000 a month. You could be financially independent today, potentially depending on their expenses, right? At that time, 20 years ago, before inflation, you know, you could be financially independent. Now, almost everybody says they need like 10,000 a month. Typically is what I hear. 10, 20, 30,000 a month is typical for our clients. But you know, still it's like, you got a million bucks, 
let's make it work. You know, I had one guy on my podcast, he was a client of ours, um, or is a client of ours. And, you know, he had a million dollars in his retirement plan. He happened to save it up just right. In fact, he even moved his money away from stocks right before Y2K crashed. Then he moved his money away from stocks right before the Great Recession. Like this guy did everything timing wise <laughs> perfectly. Yeah, what's he doing Better right now? We, American, right? Yeah, Chris, and, what's, uh, he, what's that guy doing right now? We need to know. So <laughs> now he's retired. Yeah. <laughs> well, with his money, um, with his money, if he's predicting, what's is he? Is he in cash, uh, stocks, real estate? What? Is, where is he at? Well, uh, yeah. We when we worked with him, we got him doing. We got him diversified a little bit. So he got a few like turnkey duplexes and things like that, just to kind of diversify a bit. Um, put a lot of money in like oil and gas space, specifically with like royalties, mineral rights, things like that, where you get paid on the rent of the land and you get paid on the the drilling too, on the the actual profits from that. Um, he's done some of that. And then he's also in some syndications like apartment syndications and whatnot. Um, cool thing is that million bucks, instead of living on 30,000 a year, like his financial advisor actually recommended before he came to us, um, he's now living on about 11,000 a month. So it's wow. now it's working yeah, much better. And he's now he's at that point, he could, he's just doing contract work right now. He's like, yeah, I'm working a little bit here, there, just, just for fun. It builds up my portfolio a little bit more when I get that extra cash. But you know, he's, legitimately now retired nice yeah that's great so then what sort of stuff are uh, let's get into what you you do with your clients what sort of things would you so i'm i'm let's say i'm listening i like what we're saying i um you know what what sort of stuff are you recommending clients invest in how do you look at it yeah we do primarily two things in our business we do passive income consulting you know we're not financial advisors we're not investment advisors i dropped those licenses back in 2005 right um but uh, we do help guide people along and help them really strategize where to get the money to invest and then connect them with those deals, you know? Um, and then we also do infinite banking using like life insurance to use that as part of the investment strategy to double dip, to get paid in two places at the same time with their investment money. Um, so with that strategy, like, the strategy we'll look at is like I mentioned, like turnkey rentals is one, right? And that's, that can be a good one. I mean, even though the cash flow has not been great lately, uh, there's definitely been better days in the turnkey space. Um, syndications like apartment syndications, like we were talking about on my podcast the other day, right? Um, even like self storage or commercial and things like that. Um, heck even syndications in the, in the business world, although that's a little bit more speculative, you know, like, like we have people that, you know, we have connections that sometimes will do like a car wash type of business and there could be profits from that. Um, you know, we've got stuff, like I mentioned, the oil and gas space or mineral rights, things there that's been very popular with our clients, even raw land. There's even things you could do there with business partnerships that way. Um, that's actually been my favorite investment recently uh, for myself personally. That's that's been paying off about a forty five percent return cash on cash. And what kind of what kind of land is this? Um, just raw land, just like yeah, it could be could be for development. Sometimes it's just like raw land, like you know next next to ranches. Um, it could be land that's you know recreational land or whatever it might be. Um, but we're just doing seller financing. So cool thing is oh, I'm totally I, you passive. Know. I'm letting. Then my 30% partners do all the work and I'm 70% by financing it all. But, uh, so that's the good news, but uh, it's been, it's been a great partnership that way. Cause I mean, we buy the land and usually sell it for at least double or triple the price. And then we sell it on terms for the next five or 10 years. You know, it, it's, it creates amazing cash flow off of that. So. Yeah. I heard somebody on a podcast. I think it was probably a different guy talking about the same business, but he was saying why he's done with seller financing uh, too as some something uh i forgot the reason but it sounded like a nice business um 
and they have sort of were specializing in like smaller land pieces. Like when he was talking initially, I thought he's buying like huge sites for 10 million bucks and turn them into neighborhoods. And it was like, no, I just know what it's worth and it's hard to sell these. So, you know, sometimes, so then, um, you know, we're just buying low and selling high, like it's simple. So yeah, yeah those, those land then, parcels, when you buy them wholesale, you know, or buy them at our price, I mean, it might be anywhere from like 700 bucks, you know, all the way up to maybe 10, 15 grand, you know, for that lot. So it, it depends on the property, but yeah, I mean, it's pretty cheap. It's not like buying a huge, you know, it's not like we're buying in California or anything like that, you know? Right. But, uh, but yeah, those, those the, have been great. Uh, even like lending has been good. I mean, especially lately with how things have been like the equity play, as you well know, I mean, the equity play has been a little bit tougher to find deals, but, uh, on the debt side, you know, if someone's borrowing money to renovate or even just to, you know, build to rent or whatever it might be just, or even just yeah, in general, um, that's, that's been relatively good too. Just, you know, uh, whether short-term lending or even just long-term debt funds, you know, that do lending as well. Uh, those have been pretty good too. So I mean, there's a lot of variety that we do. And of course, depending on the markets, I mean, like apartment space has been a lot tougher to find deals. So we haven't had as many of those in our group with all of our different, we have like over 20 different investment providers in our group. So, uh, but you know, a lot of times when that comes back, then that comes roaring back as well. And there's plenty of opportunities there too. Yeah. Today, if you're looking just for cash flow, I mean, I don't, I would think real estate syndications are buying turnkey deals, which if no one's heard of the term turnkey, that's you're buying a fully renovated property and renting it out. Like you're the direct owner. You're, um, you, you know, you, ideally you hire out the property management. So it's not mm -hmm. that work intensive, exactly. but you're still, you're, you're the owner and the asset manager, but yeah, the, yeah, the cash flow is very compressed. I mean, a lot of these deals, if they had no debt in them, would make five or six percent, but those are what the rates are to borrow. So you're not yeah. generating a lot of positive leverage from a cash flow standpoint. Obviously that'll change. Rents are gonna go up and then you'll be in at a higher higher cap rate, higher yield on cost. And then, you know, most people would think rates are gonna come down as well. So you'll be in a you'll be in a good spot. But yeah, if you want cash flow today, just from what I see in the real estate space, I'd be curious if there's something higher in those other uh, niches you were talking about, but it would definitely be those sort of, I'll use the term hard money loans where you can still come in in a first mortgage position, but it's like someone's gonna renovate a house. Um, they wanna do it fast and not have a lot of hoops to jump through like a bank and you could charge, you know, eight, 9% on up on that. So the the yield's a lot higher than what you'd get by in a, you know, an apartment building or something today or investing in a storage deal like what you're talking about. but. You know, you have capped upside, obviously, best case is you just get paid all your interest and paid back. Um, but I think that that makes a lot of sense if your number one thing is I just I'm focused on cash flow. Um, if you're focused on total return, I still think just more traditional syndications and owning property outright is going to do better than that. But the cash yeah. flow could be like half of that amount we were saying. Um, yeah. Exactly. Anything beating yeah, that eight, nine per, percent like is oil and gas or um what were those yeah, kind of been, yields? They target at least 10 to 15, but they usually do 15 plus. Um, I mean, now one fund I'm in, like I'm in one of, one of the uh, deals I'm in, it's only been about 8%, but that's because only 25% of it's even operating. You know, we haven't even done the other 75% yet. So it was like 8% last year. But uh, the deal, the fund that came out just the month after I got in, the next one that came in that's several of my clients got into, they were got paid 35% in the last year so wow it's kind of and that's in, yeah, so that's why in a dividend like, you know, put into multiple deals just to spread yeah. spread out to see if they get different returns you know 
Yeah, and that's you're saying thirty five percent, you know, as dividends or cash flow in a in a year on that deal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Nice. And yeah, then so where would you put that on the risk spectrum? Then so obviously, like lending would be the safest, and probably from the stuff you talked about, would seem like by being in like an apartment deal, either on your own or in a syndication, seems like the next safest. Then how's the rest of that stuff stack up? Make a risk. Yeah, standpoint. it depends on how you view it, right? Like I, I definitely look at equity. I mean, even though equity from a cash flow standpoint may not be the best right now, I still look at it as being safe as having ownership in certain things. Like even a, a turnkey property, right, where I'm not property managing, uh, the cash flow may or may not be, you know, fantastic. I usually, I'm seeing right now at least 5 or 10% cash and cash returns. So there's still some that are even 10% plus on occasion, right? But, um, you know, but at least I know I own it, I control it, it's safer, um, and it's still cash flowing. But definitely I see more opportunity in lending, um, that mineral rights space has been really good, especially because oil is still suppressed in price right now. I mean, imagine what, what that would do if it starts to go up to 90 or 100 bucks a barrel versus 70 or so. Um, it's, it's even a more profitable venture. Um, land has been great, too. Um, so really, uh, I, I guess my big focus, other than like the lending aspect, I mean, I've really been kind of more bullish on having that, that ownership and control, having real asset-backed investments, you know, like that kind of thing. I think that's that's really been the ones I've seen. And even like self-storage, like I've seen that the cap rates are shifting on that a little bit. Like unlike apartment space where people are still saying, I want more money, self-storage are starting in certain areas, they're starting to say, okay, I'm getting more realistic. And so I'm starting to see a little trend of that starting to come back as well, which that could be a, another great opportunity too. Yeah, storage got so hot where there was some mm-hmm. index where it was like, I think for REITs, um, where it was like how far above the historical average it is for either the cap rate or the the prices and the re, the storage was the most out of out of whack like in terms of like going for like two hundred percent more than normal or a hundred percent more. Oh yeah, apartments were only like thirty percent on that scale, and then industrial mm-hmm. was also like really high. Um, for being like and so I mean I think that might be just kind of reverting more to the to the mean. I mean there was a while where like a the lowest cap rates you'd see on anything were in were in self storage, and that's you know kind of surprising. Um, but it has a whole recession resistant pitch and everything, and that seems to be proven out in the in the data too. So uh, yeah, yeah. It was interesting. I was talking with an investor. He was I was asking him about how his his market was looking, and and he's out in Iowa, right? And he'll do stuff more in the Midwest, and and he said that in August of 2022, for example, one property he's looking at. Um, for that self-storage facility was 1.65 million was the asking price. And he's like, that's just too rich. It's too high. Four months later, December of 2022, he asked the same guy and that guy lowers his price to 1.15 million. So he dropped it about a half a million more just because, you know, those cap rates are shifting. They stopped expecting a higher price because nobody was buying it. It was just too overpriced. And so he's starting to see those prices come back down a little bit. Now I talked to another self-storage operator and he's saying, no, it's still hot. Like I'm still having a hard time buying good value. I think it just depends on the markets you're in. Yeah. Probably depends on the underlying fundamentals. Like the guy who cut his price a half mil. I mean, all these leases are month to month. Maybe he had a ton of people move out and he's re-renting for less going, geez, I'll never get one six, five. I better get more realistic. This has always been like a million dollar deal this whole time. Mm -hmm. And I could only get that super high rent on like one or two units and those days are done. Um, right. Exactly. Nice. 
Well, cool. Yeah, let's leave it there. I mean, so then, Chris, how do people get in touch with you? I mean, they want to learn more or work with you. I mean, what's what's the best way to do that? Yeah, you can always go to moneyripples.com. Um, and then also you can follow our podcast, the Money Ripples podcast on YouTube or any podcast, you know, like Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Cool. Perfect. Well, yeah, thanks for being on. Good conversation. Appreciate it. Yeah, same here. Appreciate it, Drew. All right. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you on the next episode. If you learned something from today's show, leave a review and hit that subscribe button wherever you enjoy your podcast. Dive deeper into real estate investing on Brenneman Capital's website, Brenneman.com, where we have numerous free resources and information that can help both active and passive real estate investors. Accredited investors can get started today as a passive investor in our multifamily investment opportunities by hitting the Invest Now button on our website. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Drew Brenneman and guests as of the date of recording and do not purport to reflect the views or opinions of Brenneman Capital LLC and its subsidiaries. Views and opinions are provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon or deemed as investment or tax advice or an offer to buy or sell securities. The speaker cannot be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.